You're listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the European Union Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash eu-west-europe. Welcome, everybody. And I would like to welcome you to this last talk in this academic year, at least in our Talking Gender in the European Union series. My name is Sabine Lang, and I'm a professor of European and International Studies at the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies. And I also direct the Center for West European Studies, a Jean Monnet Center of Excellence and I'm the Jean Monnet Chair, um, working on issues of civil society, inclusion, and diversity in the European Union. We use this forum, some of you might have been with us before, we use this forum really to bring together speakers from Europe or who work on European-focused affairs for a rather loosely threaded conversation on the state of gender equality in the European Union and in Europe more broadly. Um, before we get started, uh, let me just address a few housekeeping details. One, you notice this is a Zoom webinar, so as an audience, nobody can hear and see you. The questions that you have for our speaker today, we ask you to put into the Q&A and I will post them to the speaker after uh, she has finished her talk format roughly a 30 minute lecture and then we will turn to the Q&A and answer as many questions as we can answer within this hour. As always, I also want to acknowledge that this forum has been sponsored by the Jackson School, the Center for Global Studies, CUS, and the Jean Monnet Center. And finally, as always, a big thanks to our managing director, Phil Lyon, and our program assistant, Emily Bryant, for putting a lot of work into organizing, advertising, and making these talks run smoothly. So learning more about the state of affairs in European gender equality will take us today, not surprising maybe for some of you into crisis mode. We have with us Professor Christina Fieck from Aarhus University in Denmark, and she will talk about EU gender equality as a quasi-permanent state of crisis. Professor Fieck got her PhD in the social sciences from Aalborg University, and among many, many other hats she's worn and she wears, she was the Danish PI of a project funded by the Nordic Council called Gender and Power in the Nordic Countries. In her lecture today, she will provide us with the context of this quasi-permanent crisis in the EU as a framework for understanding the state of gender policies and the rise of right-wing populist parties in the European Parliament. I would like to welcome you, Christina, and we'll turn this over to you now. Good morning and good evening to the different audiences. Thank you very much for having me. 
giving me the chance to give this lecture and hopefully contributing to the debate on EU gender and crisis. A special thank to you, Sabine Lang, for this wonderful invitation and for organizing this. I can just supplement with the fact that I'm a Danish gender researcher based here in Denmark. It's a beautiful May evening. And uh, I've just, with a colleague from Copenhagen University, Karina Kosia-Petersen, got a new research project. We'll be looking into the democratic implications of political harassment and sexism in the Danish parliament and Danish local politics. So I'm working on EU and I'm working on Danish Nordic politics, and I'm very happy to give this talk. And I think we're going to turn on the slides. Yes. So if I start out with the next slide, I can just um, say that I'm presenting today key points from two pieces I have written and co-authored. The first one is um, the paper Gender Equality Policies and European Union Politics in Finn Lawson's Oxford Research Encyclopedia of Politics. It is published in a book. It's also available online. Um, and secondly, I am presenting uh, key points from a book chapter I have co-authored with my colleague, Professor Birte Siem, also from Denmark, on the populist challenge to gender equality, with a specific focus on the European Parliament. So here you have the two, um, the two uh, references I'm sort of referring to today, plus, of course, a number of colleagues and new and older research within this field. As these papers have been written for an encyclopedia and a handbook on gender and EU respectively, I am not at such presenting new research myself, but I'm going to present new research from colleagues and EU experts. That today's talk has got four key parts, please change. Yes, the plan for this little 30 minutes lecture is the following. First, I'm just going to introduce very briefly the topic EU gender policies, and we're looking into crisis as a framework for understanding contemporary EU gender policies. Then secondly, gender equality policies in a context of crisis, looking at some of the multiple consequences of this. Then thirdly, I'll dwell into the European Parliament in a context of crisis. And finally, we read some uh, conclusions. Beneath my rather opaque title is the perhaps by now obvious observation that EU is in a crisis and has been for some time. Scholars have taken the financial crisis from 2008 as a starting point. However, I think there are reasons to believe that the crisis is of such a profound character and influence gender equality in multiple ways. So what I will discuss, and please change the slide, what I will discuss in the following, um, and please go one slide back, what I will discuss in the following is the question of what uh, is happening to gender equality and gender policies as a result of the crisis the European Union has experienced since 2008, and equally and probably more importantly, what types of resistance to gender equality policies do we witness in the European Union? 
After a brief overview of EU gender equality, I will outline a debate on an EU crisis context. Next slide, please. Yes. So what I have called two cornerstones, um, we can talk about two cornerstones when we talk about the issue of gender equality between men and women in the EU. And this gender equality aspect has been present in the European Union ever since the Treaty of Rome. Article 119 in the Treaty of Rome uh, focused on equal pay for equal work and has been characterized as the cornerstone of EU's corpus of gender equality policies. On a newer scale, a second cornerstone is the Treaty of Amsterdam and its approach to gender equality. The Treaty of Amsterdam is characterized as a transformative step by Woodward 2012 and as a major paradigm change. The 97 Amsterdam Treaty codified gender mainstream as a primary policy tool for achieving gender equality, a policy that is now firmly embedded in the Lisbon Treaty. The Amsterdam Treaty reflects three key changes for equality policies. First of all, it strengthened the European Parliament somewhat by requiring its consultation. It introduced gender mainstreaming and it included grounds for discrimination other than sex discrimination. Please change. That means that gender equality and discrimination was, became uh, multifaceted. The Treaty of Lisbon from 2009 reflects core values of the EU, such as democracy, human rights, and the principles of equality and solidarity and it further empowered the European Parliament by introducing the ordinary legislative procedure. Now I will just move on and look at the various uh, two approaches to uh, gender uh, equality policies in the EU. Next slide, please. Yes. So, of course, this is a complex and contested field. Um, and there are various interpretations of EU gender equality policies. Some consider the EU to be a driver of gender equality, while others focus on its uneven development. The policy field is surely not a case of steady progress, but rather a case of incremental change pushed by committed actors and institutional path dependency. It is, as we will see in the following, also met by resistance. Um, and I think we can also say that it, it's the gender equality policies of the EU in the present sort of in the present context can be considered part of gender and sexual equality rights that are contested globally. So we can ask what we are actually studying. A focal point is the dynamic gender relations matter for understanding the EU and European integration. Over the last decade or a bit more, an intersectional approach has gained ground as a way of analyzing gender and other categories and intersecting inequalities. Gender equality policies are frequently linked to other political projects and policy goals, which also indicates that they are not necessarily prioritized highly in themselves. This will also become clear in a moment. In the 1960s, the EU linked gender equality to unfair competition, then to combating unemployment in the 70s and 1980s, and in the 1990s to the Lisbon criteria of full employment and the knowledge economy. Please, next slide. 
Yes. So I now move into my first point, crisis as a framework for understanding contemporary EU gender policies. Applying crisis as a framework needs some reflection on the scholarly concept of crisis. Crisis is here with Derman and Verdun applied to large scale events affecting the EU and discussing how these events influence the EU with a particular focus on gender equality policies. Derman and Verdun point at how the different crisis scenarios are used in the literature. Those that undermine the basic, basic integrity of the undertaking, those that threaten certain domains or the activities of certain groups, and those that reflect short-term but acute dangers that may be overcome without structural change. We can say that since 2008, the EU has been struggling with the interrelated interrelatedness of the Euro, refugee and Brexit crisis, to name but a few. And most recently, in the end of the second decade of the 2000s with the pandemic, COVID-19, and now seems to be in a state of malaise. In addition to this, there are the more recent concerns about the rise of populism. The authors, Derman and Verdun, point out that the actual variety of crises that the rise of populism represent is still unclear. It's simply still being analyzed. What do we know is that a growing sense of support for extremist and Eurosceptic parties led to what has been characterized as a legitimate crisis for the EU. This political shift also led to the changed composition of the European Parliament with a rise in right wing populist parties and more heterogeneous attitudes to gender equality and reproductive rights. This is particularly a result of the elections to the European Parliament in 2014 and 2019. So there are very good reasons to assume that these multiple crises may be here to stay, as they are a result of many factors that are at once local, domestic, European and global, as Derman and Verdun point out. It might be worth also explaining that the term quasi-permanent crisis, which I owe to the two researchers, John Eric Fossum and August Jose Menendez, 2014, from Research Center Arena in Oslo in their paper on the consequences of the financial crisis. Please, next slide. We now look at some of the consequences of crisis for gender equality policies, and I have divided those in five points. And on top of that, I'm just introducing with a little, little sentence about gender mainstreaming, which we saw uh, explained in terms of the Amsterdam Treaty just before. Gender mainstreaming, a cornerstone of gender equality policies, has been criticized even before the effects of the financial crisis took off. Johanna Kentule identifies three interlocking problems in her, in her book 2010. The EU has adopted a technical and integrationist form of gender mainstreaming. The scope and impact of gender mainstreaming has been limited instead of resulting in radical change in gender relations. And thirdly, gender mainstreaming is complicit with neoliberal forms of EU governance. Scholarship on EU gender equality policies present different interpretation of the EU as a possible promoter of gender equality. So we can say in some, the interpretations are mixed. However, there's an agreement that gender equality policies are undergoing transformations and they are subject to change for the worse. 
if we look at the first, um, we can say that dismantling gender equality policies is something that echoes quite clearly in the literature. Some scholars claim that the EU's gender equality policies are being dismantled like Chacot 2015. She employs the term dismantling to describe contemporary gender equality policies characterized not by, and I quote, a total deconstruction or a disappearance of the policy, but by a significant reduction both in the density and intensity of European public action in the fight against gender inequalities. End of quote. This dismantling is the result of the continuation of a public policy trajectory sharpened by the economic crisis. Secondly, deinstitutionalization and opposition. A phenomenon which is significant for gender equality policies is the stark opposition to gender equality across Europe. Gender scholars have begun to identify the different dimensions of anti-gender equality policies. These include increasingly hostile policy processes, dismantling of existing policies or amending policies so that their priorities or uh, objectives change, undermining implementation and institutional design, an erosion of inclusion and accountability mechanisms, such as, for example, dismantling formal consultation structures of women's rights advocacy in consultation processes beyond agenda setting. And this is Christian and Roggeband, 2018. Thirdly, backlash actors and inactivity. Petra Aaron's study based on interview data with central EU actors finds that direct opposition to gender and inequality policies mostly come from the European Parliament and from external actors to the network of EU gender and equality actors. This research confirms the opposition to gender, what she characterizes as gender plus equality has become unacceptable, a taboo on the supranational EU level leading to a low prevalence of politically incorrect direct opposition and more indirect forms of opposition. This absent, absence of direct opposition results from the self-image of the EU as a defender of equality between men and women. And I'm sorry to shame some countries, but what I'm saying is, is quoted from Arons and something I, of course, also share. For example, Malta, Poland and Ireland are labelled as a backlash triangle due to their opposition to abortion and reproductive rights. Petra Ernst identifies a topology of indirect opposition to gender equality that is effective in hampering further improvements, such as inactivity, evasion, avoiding participation in exchanges about gender inequality, and thirdly, degradation, actors isolate and devalue gender inequality policies. Fourthly, looking at these multiple consequences, we also have to talk about Brexit. Garina and Masselot's analysis of Brexit illustrates another problematic dimension of gender equality. I think we can also talk about Brexit as an example of an EU crisis and a permanent one. The authors draw a projected scenario of the United Kingdom, sorry, in, of the United Kingdom in a post-EU membership environment, arguing that British women will find themselves deprived of EU advocacy for gender equality in the post-Brexit 
environment. And that the UK's withdrawal from the EU is likely to impact on British women's reproductive rights. Advocacy for gender equality is likely to become quickly and deeply eroded. A final theme to discuss is gender equality policies and economic policies. When it comes to the crisis context for economic policies, gender scholars are very critical. Some of these criticisms are the following. The post-2008 austerity agenda has marginalized the values of gender and wider social equality within the Commission Europe 2020 economic strategy. This is Cantula and Lombardo's 2017 analysis I'm quoting. Gender neutrality was accepted as the dominant norm in economic policy, and this norm was able to resist the integration of a gender perspective. The decision to prioritize spending cuts over tax increases in fiscal consolidation is gendered. Women are overrepresented in public sector work and at lower levels of the public sector. Gender has not been it's, sorry, gender has not been mainstreamed neither in policy design nor in the implementation of crisis measure. This is a conclusion of Cantula and Lombardo. The EU has shifted its priorities. Gender equality is not treated as a social goal and is no longer integrated in employment policies. Please change. Yes. I now move on to the third part, the European Parliament in a context of crisis, right-wing populism and gender. Special attention ought to be paid to the European Parliament as the only directly democratically elected institution in the EU institutional architecture. Certain characteristics um, are clear when it comes to the European Parliament and especially the European parliamentary elections. They are in the literature characterized as second-order elections. They are based on national party financing of the EP elections. This also means that the election campaigns are run nationally. The media coverage is focused on national issues so that EU coverage is basically is, is based on a, a national lens. There's no European demos critique is quite often brought forward in terms of the European Parliament that there's perhaps a there's a discussion going on about the democratic um, public sphere, about the democratic demos. And often EP is framed as suffering from a democratic deficit. Please change. Thank you. What is recent research has pointed to changes in the parliament's ability to promote gender equality. What is at stake here is the various ways right-wing populist party groups and politicians change the European Parliament's profile on gender equality policies. And this is what I'll be talking about in the next couple of slides. Over the past six decades, the European Parliament has promoted gender equality in terms of a gender setting and adoption of resolutions on new issues at times when there was no clear treaty base existing. As I said before, recent research has pointed to changes in the Parliament's ability to promote gender equality, as pointed out by, by Van der Floyd in 2019. It shows that electoral gains of right-wing parties following the elections of 2014 and 2019 have created political groupings 
which are able to challenge the parliament as an engine, engine for gender equality. Right-wing populist groups have sharpened the rhetoric about women's and gender issues, essentializing views of women and strengthening opposition to the supranational promotion of gender equality on EU level. The result has been a shift from gender at the EU level to a stronger focus on national politics. Policies and politics. Five points stand out in debates on the European Parliament gender and crisis, and I'll go through them in this moment. First, scholars have emphasized that despite its history as a promoter of gender equality and women's rights, the European Parliament no longer acts as a unified and agenda setting actor for gender equality. Scholars point to the importance of considering national party frames, which have become predictors of voting positions within the European Parliament regarding anti-discrimination. And I'm here drawing on research by Faulkner and Plattner 2019. And emphasize that gender equality is increasingly politicized within the Parliament. Secondly, populist right-wing um, Parties may influence both policy outcome directly via increased presence and via their voice in the EU decision-making and indirectly, indirectly sorry, via notching other parties to take on board their preferred topics or even viewpoints. Faulkner and Plattner, 2019. Thirdly, and please turn the slide. Cases, uh, country cases, where right-wing populist parties are in power and they are particularly in focus for our discussion. And here I'm just going to mention two, Hungary and Poland. For example, Hungary is characterized by a transition to illiberalism, a system that rests on the rejection of civic liberalism, that is checks and balances, civil liberties, and that undermines democracy in the process. In this case, the Prime Minister Viktor Orban, who is just re-elected, is effectively challenging EU values of liberal democracy, human rights and gender equality. Another, in my view, worrying case is Poland, where the government combines anti-liberal, anti-abortion, anti-pluralist and anti-feminist rhetoric and policies. In all, there's a growing concern that negative attitudes to key aspects of gender equality and anti-discrimination at the national level may spill over to affect gender equality policies in the European Parliament. And this is a consequence of the growth of right-wing populist parties across the EU. Please go one slide back. Thank you. Yes. The threats to liberal democracy and legal rights in a number of member states have added to the impression that the EU is not able to deal with populist politics. Democratic backsliding and de-democratization processes have serious consequences and often include opposition to gender equality. A fourth point is transnational equality civil society organizations, and I'm here drawing on research by Ernst and Woodward 2020. 
A question is what the impact of the change composition in the 2014 and 2019 European Parliament, what that results in more right-wing populist uh, members of Parliament in the members of European Parliament, and what it means for the openness to transnational equality civil society organizations. These civil society organizations promote diversity, gender equality and sexual rights, and there are various activities around the EP, for example, committee hearings, play an important role in forming the EP agenda and positioning them vis-a-vis -vis the Commission and the Council. Despite the changing environment in the European Parliament, the actors have maintained their presence on the states and by moving to more informal venues. This is due to these civil society organizations, adaption techniques and non-populist MEPs pro-activism is the conclusion by Ahrens and Woodward, 2020. New research, please change two slides. Yes, next slide, thank you. Given the increasing power of the European Parliament and its participation in European legislative procedure, the question of what the potential impact of right-wing political groups on gender equality will be is an important one. And this is an example we're looking at now. A fifth point is new research which adds to our knowledge about the significance of right-wing parties in the European Parliament in a gender perspective. Research by Ahrens, Gavida and Kentula 2021 shows how core EU values such as human rights and gender equality are defended and reframed by the political groups in the European Parliament. The analysis, which covers 130 interviews and discursive analysis of plenary debates, the analysis shows tensions between the various political groups in terms of discourses on human rights, gender equality and religion. These depend on the national delegations. The authors identify three clusters. Please move on. Yes. The defenders of gender equality and LGBT plus rights as human rights. The reframers who oppose this point of view and they oppose the strategy to view gender equality as a facet of human rights. And the, those sitting on the fence depending on the national delegations. We need more knowledge about the implication of recent political transformations for gender equality, knowledge that explores the complex links between the national and transnational levels of the EU. Finally, I reach my conclusion and the last slide. Next slide, please. Yes. If you look at existing research, we can draw the, full, uh, the following conclusions. As with many other policies, gender equality policy is characterized by a gap between rhetoric and praxis and by alternations between progress and stagnation, as van der Floyden concluded in 2007, as well as phenomena such as dismantling of gender equality policy in a tier resistance and deinstitutionalization. A contemporary analysis of gender equality policies needs to take into consideration the crisis context that the EU is going through. 
with a particular focus on the question of what happens to gender equality policies and efforts to combat multiple discrimination. In broad terms, there seems to be an agreement that EU gender policies have taken a negative turn, particularly since 2000, the 2008 financial crisis and the subsequent crises that have cascaded through society, as Walby concluded in her book 2015. The political climate across the EU and in many EU countries is critical of gender equality, political intersectionality and anti-discrimination. We are seeing gender equality, sexual and reproductive rights, LGBT plus rights, threatened by state and non-state actors, which Kuhar Pernod 2017 and Fellow 2018 concluded, and also this, we see this as well in the European Parliament. It remains to be seen what these changes will lead to. The study of the Europeanization of gender equality provides support for the view that its impact must be investigated over time. The same goes for the gender defects of the EU's multiple crises. Recent developments and austerity policies could reverse the long-term progress that has been achieved in European gender equality policies. Although the analysis of gender equality policies is well developed within gender studies, when it comes to mainstream European studies, the picture looks rather more mixed. Gender equality and the insights of feminist scholarship remain um, largely marginal to the European Union studies canon. This talk and the papers and research uh, I have quoted contribute to the intellectual project of understanding gender equality policies in the EU. The absence, the opposition and the silencing of gender equality policies in the EU and elsewhere will merit special attention in the years to come. Thank you. Thank you very much, Christina, for this uh, really grand arc in the past, present and some of the future of EU gender policies. Um, I would encourage our listeners and our guests here to put questions in the Q&A that you see on the lower middle of your screen. Um, while you're thinking about your questions, um, I would like to start by um, kind of going down a, 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 an avenue that you've presented indirectly, and that is the relationship between member states and EU policies. You, so um, clearly in some of the examples you presented, it is very much national politics that is driving EU investment or hindering or blocking EU investment in, in gender equality policies. You talked about Hungary and Poland, maybe we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but I was gonna interject uh, maybe also a hopeful remark. Uh, you mentioned Ireland in the context of the anti-abortion triangle. So what happened in Ireland in 2018 was a, a large scale mobilization that led to a referendum and a change in Irish abortion policy, um, a, a progressive change. So I guess my question for starters, if we go down this route of member state and EU policy would be from your perspective in Denmark or the Nordic countries, um, to what degree 
do you see the policies, the, the policies in your national context or the discussions in your national context turning either dark, like you explained, or doing resistance work to keep gender equality on the agenda and even move it against more strongly on, onto the EU level? I think that's a very good question, Sabine, and there's no doubt that this nexus of the national versus the supranational uh, level is very important in the discussion of gender equality. Um, whether we are seeing more or less resistance in, in the Nordic countries, I mean, we're probably seeing less than in, in some of the other um, regions of the EU, I will say. But I can just give one example from Danish politics, which originally voted, uh, the parliament originally voted no to extending um, paternity rights, paternity leave. So that it has been the EU that has been lifting this into Danish legislation and Danish EU, uh, sorry, Danish politics. So I think it is a question with different um, with different answers. One thing that I think is is a conclusion in terms of right wing politics is that it's very important to study right wing national right wing parties gender equality agenda to know something about how they will actually vote and uh, argue in the European Parliament. So that means we need to focus on national discourses and national parliamentary debates on gender equality in order to predict or to, to understand what, what the, um, the European Parliament debates will actually contain. And I think in that sense, the great variation in EU will actually also here come, come into the picture that there are, I guess, also both East, West and North South quite remarkable differences, I guess, between the the essence of gender equality, the moral values. Uh, you mentioned abortion, which would be one example. I guess another example would be LGBT plus rights. And there would also be quite um, questionable differences across the EU. So in order to try to answer your question, I think it's important to keep a national focus. But of course, we're also looking at the supranational level as very important. So I would say the nexus national versus Europeanization of gender equality would be my key focus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So as you just mentioned it, could you talk a little bit more about the national debates in the Nordic countries that are framed by right-wing or populist ideas in the, in the gender equality arena? I mean, yes, I mean, for the Nordic countries, um, as you probably know, we, we are quite proud and, and self-conscious about gender equality and have over decades used gender equality as a self-identifying poster image of the Nordic countries and the women-friendly Nordic welfare state. So, I mean, that's the basic argument and the framework. But when we look at the empirical facts today, I think gender equality is a very dividing, um, dividing issue um, both in Denmark, but also in the other Nordic countries. I mean, here in Denmark, a, a, a small number, a, a majority, but still a majority, uh, sorry, a minority of especially men in surveys show that they consider, uh, they consider gender equality as a closed case. So here the debate is, is either among the young generation that there's definitely a consciousness about gender equality and sexual rights and sexual identities, but in, um, 
in other aspects, uh, there would be a, a part of the population that would consider gender equality as, as something that has already been obtained. So it is controversial. And I think, as in many other places, gender equality and, and anti-discrimination has moved to the forefront of the political debates in so many ways. If we look at the right-wing parties and right-wing populist, right populist parties in the Nordic countries, I think a number of them are using femonationalist argument about the division, gender as a dividing line between the majority and the minority women. And in that sense, trying to exploit um, gender equality as a political marker of liberation and Nordicness. So there's quite a lot of critical research of the Nordic countries and the welfare state in a, multi, in a multicultural perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think now you're mentioning, and now we have an international audience, I think it's also might be worth pointing out that in the Nordic countries, we consider the Nordic differences greater than the similarities for the simple reason that I'm just talking about, that gender has always been um, considered a, an identifying marker, but also that the differences in gender equality policies are, in, in our view here in the Nordic countries, quite remarkable. Mm -hmm. Indeed, and, and, and many colleagues, I guess, argue that Denmark is going its very own way among the Nordic countries. Could you say a few words for, I'm sure we're having a lot of people who do not know. The, no, no, sure. Well, I can start out by saying that Denmark is a very small country with 5 million people. So, I mean, in the big scheme of, scheme of things, you know, we can ask um, how important Denmark is. But I think as a critical case for gender equality, Denmark and the Nordic countries are quite interesting. Because with an early um, enfranchisement for women and an early enfranchisement, for universal enfranchisement, I think the democratization and the political participation and mobilization of women have been going on for more than 50 years in the Nordic countries. I mean, going back to the early um, 20th century, of course. But I mean, the, the role of women ha ha is quite interesting in the Nordic countries. Now, Denmark is a specific case because Denmark has institutionalized gender equality to a much smaller degree than the other Nordic countries. And generally speaking, shown less, um, demonstrated less political uh, attention and interest for gender equality policies. So if we make a Nordic comparison, we can say that some of the other Nordic countries, Sweden, Finland, Norway, Iceland, for instance, would stand out much more clearly in terms of statistics, in, in terms of less gender segregation, and perhaps of a more public discourse of gender inequality and feminism that then happens in Denmark. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um. I'd like to bring a, a, a question in from the audience here um, and that casts the net even wider, namely in transatlantic perspective. So you, you might have followed that we just um, got a first glimpse at a anticipated Supreme Court ruling in the United States that would yes. abolish abortion rights. Um, and the question here is, um, does that, in your opinion, embolden European actors on the EU level, I would think, in particular in the EU Parliament, to um, realize that um, the other strong Western democracy is going down that route? Or would you say those are two very different cases that shouldn't be mixed up? Mm -hmm. 
speaking from a personal point of view and speaking from a research point of view, I, I have absolutely no doubt that everybody is looking to the Supreme Court in the US and that what we see in the US is already echoing quite strongly in Europe. I see this as a global tendency, as a global backlash for women's rights, I mean, women's reproductive rights uh, nonstop. I mentioned the two cases I brought in, um, even if those cases are perhaps only two countries, they stand out quite clearly in EU debates, Poland and, um, and Hungary. We have had the debate in terms of the Polish um, government and the um, in a similar situation in terms of women's reproductive rights. I don't think this is an American case at all. I consider the American Supreme Court as a global voice in this. And uh, it's, it's also, I guess, worth pointing out that it's a very dividing line in, 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 in terms of the population, my impression is, from the US. So in Denmark's neighboring country, Poland, this is a very strong discussion, and I think the only reason it's not there's not a, a full-on European stand on this is because of these two countries, because otherwise I think the EU would come out more strongly probably and, and condemn what happens in the US. But my idea would be that there's, there's, no, uh, on, there's no anonymity, there's no agreement in the EU on this. So there's no, I guess, strong public statement. But I don't think this is a, an American case. This is a global case. And I think everybody is looking to the US. Um, and, and it is strange to say that even if Denmark got free abortion in 1973, um, over the last couple of years, all of a sudden we have seen voices in the debate sort of asking about abortion. So even if this is a country that would consider itself really strong on women's reproductive rights, and I think rightly so, I think the discussion and the discourses from various countries and governments in terms of reproductive rights and backlash slowly but safely also turn into debates in, in countries like Denmark. Yeah, yeah, I, I would very much agree with that. And that kind of, you know, fuels into um, the first couple of slides you, you presented, these um, approaches to how we see gender equality in the EU. And I think absolutely correct. In the 70s, 80s, we could still see it as we call it here a norm entrepreneur, um, Christine Ingebrigtsen, one of our colleagues, a Scandinavian scholar um, is, is working with that. Um, so the EU as a driver of gender equality and then slowly this transition to more incremental changes that now do not quite look like a backlash yet, but they definitely look like stagnation. And uh, if you put it in a global context, then uh, the, the challenges and the resistance modes are really intense. Um, so I think, Sabine, if I can continue, I think what we're seeing there, this this global backlash, I think one, one aspect of that is exactly the American, um, the US High Court, uh, Supreme Court, sorry, but, um, you would, you would wonder what other signals there are, because I think in many ways, um, what happens in the US would echo in the EU. So one can wonder, but also the other way around, how these rather conservative views on women's rights and reproductive rights are actually, you know, different. Uh, they're, they're a global phenomenon with local um, and national um, frameworks. Mm -hmm. So I think it is it is worth considering this both in terms of the US, but also in terms of EU countries, what would be the next step, you know, would that spread? 
Uh, is that a discourse that more countries would sort of uh, dig into? I think it's something we really have to keep a close eye on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, so you presented um, some aspects of uh, Petra Arens and uh, Johanna Kantola's research on your, the European Parliament as a, as a, and Barbara Gaveta is part of that too, as a, as a, as a site for these struggles on um, gender equality. Um, one aspect of that research or one outcome of that research is also, I understand this notion that we need to find ways to institutionalize what they call gender sensitive parliaments. Um, parliaments that in what we call descriptive representation, meaning how many women, men, and uh, diverse populations are part of the parliament. And uh, in terms of also what they represent, how can we organize towards having this gender sensitivity increased instead of decreased. So what comes to your mind when you, when you think about the European Parliament that way? In, in um, you know, there, there, there are colleagues who work on um, transferring quota stipulations from the national to the transnational level. There are colleagues who think it is the party families that primarily need to push for that gender sensitivity. Where would you put your, your gold, your, your, your investment? <laughs> that's a, I think that's a very good question. I think what's remarkable about this study by Aarons, El Cantula and Gavida is that there is this, I mean, based on a very huge empirical material, both um, I think nine plenary debates and 130 interviews. So they've done a massive study. And what they conclude is the most interesting, I guess, is these reframers that they're actually persons and sorry, MEPs, members of parliament and party groups that actually work towards reframing gender equality as part of a human rights regime. I think that's uh, something we definitely have to pay attention to. Um, I actually don't know what to answer to that question, how to make them more gender sensitive. Of course, there would be some institutional aspects that could be interesting, more hearings, quotas, as you say. Um, perhaps a stronger connection between the national parliaments and the EU parliament in order to actually facilitate the debates so that the uh, national parliaments would also feel heard. I guess there's a, there's, there's a slight discrepancy there. Um, but the changing composition of the European parliament, I think you have to look elsewhere, perhaps look into the Euroscepticism and, and consider where that comes from, look into the traditional family values that are also a part of that right-wing populism and wondering about how that can, how these, um, how these voices, where do they come from? What do they represent? Have we created an, an EU which is based on, you know, a marginalized um, Eurosceptic part and a pro-EU um, segment of the population? So I think we have to look into a broader structural analysis of perhaps even of economic inequalities and social inequalities and marginalization and anti-EU skepticism in order to facilitate a more gender sensitive parliament. So there's some very big structural issues probably that have to be changed. But of course, there's also the, I guess, the daily uh, routines of hearings and um, 
parliamentary debates, a connection with the national parliaments, etc. So there would be some, I would call it not routine politics, but some smaller political changes that could be implemented. And at the same time, there's a bigger structural issue, which I think European parliamentarians and politicians would definitely have to relate to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I mean, I, I, I think many of us have had real qualms when the gender unit in the DG moved from labor, consumer and social affairs into justice. It's now the gender area of, of policymaking is within the DG justice. And that has taken, I think, visibility away from it, but also probably some uh, impetus to really act uh, more broadly than, than, uh, than, you know, legally minded people often would do. So it's, it's more about um, visibility on that front. Um, if ne next week we'll have um, our colleague Joyce Mooshaben with us, who also studied uh, together with Gabriela Abel's um, EU gender policies. And I guess if she would be here, she would ask about Ursula von der Leyen. And she would ask about the question, did having more women in decision-making, you know, stronger representation of EU foreign ministers in decision-making, more, um, you know, women in, in, in governing positions. Does that make a difference in your mind? Or is this showing us right now that even with stronger representation decision-making, this um, stagnation um, or this incremental policy making is not changing much. I think here we have to probably look at this in two ways. I mean, there's a question of the political elite, the political leadership and the role models that, you know, female politicians automatically become. And there's, then there's a question of a, a critical mass of more women MEPs, more women female, um, sorry, female um, politicians in representation. And I think these two are not necessarily the same. We know from our Swedish colleagues, Lena Wengneroth, that her point is that women would be slightly more interested than male politicians in, in gender equality and anti-discrimination. And I don't know if we can directly transfer that from Nordic politics, but there's no doubt that um, more, more women would probably emphasize the gender equality aspect more in a, in a setting like the European Parliament. Having said that, we also know that the party groups are really important. Um, party families are really important for the members. And we also know that the national delegations have got a national uh, affinities have got something to say. So I'm not sure that gender as such necessarily would mean something in the, in the European Parliament. But I guess it is an, a, an, an easy thought to think of. It's an interesting thought to think, how would the composition, how would the policies change if the gender composition of the parliament changed radically? When we then look at political elites and a person like Ursula von Leiden, I mean, the question is, I guess, a bit broader. I think we can say that women, female politicians, um, political leaders do have a role in breaking 
glass ceilings and they have a role as a role model. Whether they individually are orientated towards gender equality, I guess, is, is an interesting question. And I don't think there's any guarantee. We see several examples of pro and con in European politics. And I'm sure that's I know that's the same in American politics. So it's not necessarily because you're a woman that you would change uh, political um, the political scene, but I think a critical mass of more female politicians would probably have an influence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you agree? I would agree with that. I, I yeah. think it's um, you know been a real um, learning curve for many of us to see um, women on the right articulating. I, in Germany, there is a famous example, a woman named Beatrix von Storch, who is with the German alternative for Germany, um, a ultra-right wing party, who is doing every, or did, she's now not re-elected, but did everything she could during her time in the European Parliament to um, hold up legislation, to put sand into every policy initiative she encountered while being on the Women's Committee. So yes, um, it depends. We also know, Sabine, I also want to say that we know from research, among others, Danish research into Pierre de Sim and Susi Moret have focused on um, right-wing populist party leaders and I think uh, female leaders. And what they conclude is that the parties don't actually agree across Europe. They don't seem to agree on gender equality. They have various aspects of gender equality and anti-discrimination. So there's no, I guess there's no rule, but I guess especially the German AFD has probably got some really interesting, um, not interesting, but remarkable points of view when it comes to gender equality. So no, you can't, you can't sort of token out the single female politician and be guaranteed that she would in her own way change radically gender policies i mean it just i don't think it works like that but i think a critical mass of female politicians in across the parties probably have some kind of agenda setting role i agree and that's maybe a hopeful word of conclusion here uh, that would mean and this is for our US audience too, to really pay attention about composition of your legislatures. That would mean looking at what uh, people represent. And I um, don't think we can really end on a completely negative uh, mode here because I, I um, when I look at it comparatively also see what has actually been achieved in the 1970s through the 1980s and 90s in the European context. Um, Childcare, um, paternity leave, you know, all issues that um, in my country here, uh, there's still a lot of fighting about. So nonetheless, Christina, this has been a very pleasurable hour with you. We thank you for making time late at night for us and sharing your thoughts and hope that you can be back some year. That would be very nice. To our Thank audience, very much. Um, this was our last talk in the series. So I ask you to check us out over the summer when we will post the newest program for the following year. Have a good rest of the day and bye-bye everybody. Bye-bye from Denmark.